Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I mean, one thing I learned from him that I've used with other actors is um, a lot of times when it's not your coverage, he's, he starts improvising. So the reactions you get from his improvisations can be very authentic. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to The Awardist, where we are chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year and breaking down the state of the 2024 Oscars race. I'm Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall. Joey Nolfi is off on assignment, so joining me this week is EW writer Lauren Huff. Hey, Lauren, how are you? Hey, Jared. How are you? It's good to be here. I'm uh, I'm doing well, and I'm really uh, excited to have you here, especially because of um, one particular movie that we are going <laughs> to talk about um, in just a few minutes. Um, but uh, first, let's uh, let's kick off this episode with some breaking news. Uh, sound the sirens and whatever. Jimmy Kimmel will return as host of the Oscars for the fourth time. Uh, in a statement, he said, "Quote." I always dreamed of hosting the Oscars exactly four times. Uh, so there you go. Very, very typical uh, Jimmy humor there. Um, Lauren, what are your thoughts? Do you love him as host? Do you think he's boring? Is it a safe choice? Like, should they have uh, gone outside of the box? Though I don't even know what that means anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's sort of obviously the safe choice, um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think, yeah, right. you know, especially given some certain... Oscar snafus that have happened in the last 10 years or so. I think it's, you know, kind of a natural thing to want to go with the safe choice. And I do enjoy yeah. um, Jimmy's hosting. I think he does a good job. Agree. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, um, but I do think it's the safe choice. Um, it might have been nice to have something something a little different, but I, I'm with you. I don't really know what that something different would have been. And, you right. know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, even the year that, uh, I mean, of course, it it went south for all kinds of reasons that had nothing to do with the host. But when we had Amy Schumer, uh, Regina Hall, and um, Wanda Sykes, I loved them as hosts. I thought all of their stuff together was great. But then when they got a chance to shine solo, I don't know. I loved them. And I thought it was... Um, uh, you know, what what happened that night with Will Smith and, and Chris Rock really kind of uh, ultimately, I think, overshadowed how great they were. Um, so I wish they would all come back and do it again. But I think they all, um, you know, are kind of like, mm, we, we don't we don't want to come back to that stage anytime soon. <laughs> it's a hard gig. You know, yeah. I, I think it's hard to get people to say yes to it, um, yeah. especially because of some of those things happening. I mean, it's, you know. It is live television at the end of the day, so anything yeah. can happen and anything does happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It was nice to sort of see a, a change. But again, I mean, I like Jimmy. I think he's, yeah. I, I think yeah. he does a good job. And I think it's, 
it, it, it does help to have somebody who's, I mean, he was there for the craziest of all the crazies. Sure um, <laughs> yeah, the and he handled La La it like Land, a pro. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, he sure did. He sure did. Yeah. And that's exactly it right there. He is a pro. Um, he, he knows how to read the room. Stars love him. I, I think he's, uh, yeah, I think he's a great choice. Um, all right. Well, uh, since our last episode, just a week ago, it's so crazy to think this was only a week ago, the SAG after a strike has ended. If you can Ooh. hear the cheers all around Hollywood. Um, that, by the way, means that we are fielding a slew of interview requests and, and already conducting a lot of those interviews with stars right now, some of which we will bring you here on the podcast, others of which you will be able to check out at EW.com. Among those is Killers of the Flower Moon stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone. Our Devin Kogan just chatted with them and we will have that interview for you later in this episode. Um, and Lauren also just finished some interviews. We're going to talk about that in just a minute because first I want to um, talk about this, Lauren. A handful of uh, award winners uh, and you know tribute honorees were announced this week. So let's run through those quickly. Um, 2024 Palm Springs International Film Festival announced that Killers of the Flower Moon, speaking of them, will receive the Vanguard Award. Uh, that is a group honor distinguishing a film's cast and director in recognition of their collective work on an exceptional film project. Uh, that is their wording, not mine. The award will be presented to Martin Scorsese, of course, the director and co-writer, as well as executive producer Leonardo DiCaprio, who also stars in the film, alongside Gotham Award nominee Lily Gladstone. Speaking of the Gotham Awards, they are honoring Barbie director and co-writer Greta Gerwig with the Gotham Global Icon and Creator Tribute. That is something new this year created to, quote, recognize cultural icons and the filmmakers responsible for bringing that icon story to life. Then Santa Barbara International Film Festival, they will honor Robert Downey Jr. with the Malton Modern Master Award, its highest accolade, of course, named for film critic and historian Leonard Malton, who will lead that tribute and in-person conversation with Downey at the February Festival. Uh, by the way, Santa Barbara is also honoring Downey's fellow supporting actor contender Ryan Gosling with its Kirk Douglas Award. And then the Critics' Choice Association announced honorees for the celebration of cinema and television, honoring Black, Latino, and AAPI achievements. And among those is Past Lives star Greta Lee and the cast of The Color Purple. Um, I think we are going to start seeing a lot more of those kinds of uh, tributes and such announced in the coming weeks. But let me ask you this, Lauren. How vital do you find these festival tributes and honors from award bodies to be in the grand scheme of campaigns? Well, first of all, kudos to you for getting through all of that. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Took a year off quite my a life, but it's fine. Right, right. So some of that was some serious alliteration going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think these kinds of things are always, it's it's sort of the way I feel about a lot of the like early sort of precursor awards um, that we're going to be seeing in the next like month or so in that like, I don't know that it's necessarily predictive of wins per se, but I do think that it all does sort of give a good boost to certain campaigns and mm -hmm. sort of tell voters sort of what to look for. Um, I, especially out of that lineup that you, that you mentioned, one that comes to mind is um, Past Lives mm -hmm. and something like that, a film that came out earlier this year, those kinds of films are always the kind of ones that need that, that sort of reminder for voters, yeah. right? Like 
you know, everybody saw Barbie, you know, everybody saw Oppenheimer, (laughs) you know, these are, these are films that for sure are going to be talked about, but those, those little films um, like past lives, I think those are the ones that get a lot more boost from these sorts of things. But, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would say it, 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 it's like, Oh, these, these, these guys are for sure going to walk away with Oscars this year. It's more, here, voters, here's some things that we, we want you to look right. at. And it's a great honor for those people. I mean, congrats to Robert Downey Jr. and Greta Gerwig and all the people you mentioned. I mean, it's wonderful that they're getting honored, of course. Yeah, I mean, the, the performances this year have just been outstanding. Um, and even for them to kind of narrow down and pick, you know, uh, some of these individual tributes, uh, you know, these these various uh, festivals and voting bodies, um, not, not an easy task this year. Um, cause there are so, so many, um, great folks, uh, out there to recognize. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I teased a few minutes ago that, um, you have, uh, just also wrapped up some interviews. Uh, it is with two stars of, uh, what I, I think I am comfortable calling my favorite movie of 2023. I've seen it three times now. Uh, it is a movie that I think should be getting all kinds of awards attention. Uh, the two stars I'm talking about, Barry Keoghan and Jacob Elordi, stars of Saltburn, which opens in select theaters this weekend, and then uh, it starts to expand next week uh, with Thanksgiving. Um, by the way, be sure to check out EW.com for Lauren's coverage of that movie, uh, and we will be sharing my extended interview with writer and director Emerald Fennell here in a couple weeks. But um, we're, we're holding that interview, by the way, because there are some some spoilery things in the conversation, and we <laughs> want to give people the chance to see the movie before we dive into some of those. But um, that premiere, uh, the movie had its premiere this week here in L.A. Uh, like I said, it's my third time seeing it. But uh, this third time at the premiere is perhaps the time I enjoyed the most, Lauren, because um, it is really a movie to be seen with other people. I mean, I saw it with other people the first time. There were maybe five or six other people in the theater, and the second time, maybe 20 more. But this was, you know, uh, a few hundred people. Um, I, As I understand it, your screening of it at the Academy Museum went over well? Is, is that, I mean, certainly uh, um, people reacting. Yes. Yeah. I, (laughs) (laughs) I was actually pleasantly surprised, um, by my, the way my audience engaged with it. Um, I, I don't think it's any, um, secret to say that, that Academy voters, uh, of years past, and that's not necessarily, you know, we're hopefully moving away from this a little bit, but in in the past, they've been a little, um, shall we say (laughs) more conservative, I guess. Uh um, uh That is a good word. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's fair. Right. Um, and, and this film is, uh, without spoiling anything is kind of the exact opposite of, of that. And Mm -hmm. it, it deserves to be seen with the biggest crowd possible. And I know we say that about a lot of movies, the temple movies and all of that, but I mean, Mm -hmm. this is one that you, you really need to, to get that visceral audible reaction from from the audience. And, and I was pleasantly surprised because my audience, they were groaning, they were sighing, they were, um, gasping. Uh, I heard several oh no's and um, <laughs> I love it <laughs> and, and it got it got a good good round of applause at the end so I mean they were good. they were definitely going through all the emotions that that film brings up and I wish I could um, 
say exactly what parts those were. I know you yeah. know what I'm talking about, yeah. but um, our audience here is just going to have to go see the film for themselves. And I think you'll know, you'll know uh, what those oh. moments are. <laughs> oh, you will know, you'll know. Yeah. And, and to, to just be clear, like the groans are not bad. The groans I think are an appropriate response um, mm-hmm. because uh, what I've been telling some friends uh, is that um, the scenes are shocking and Emerald Fennell knows that. But if you can get past what you're seeing and focus on why she's showing it, that is what is so important here to really like get into the mind of some characters is what I will say. I don't want to lead yes. more toward one or another. Um, yes. So I'll no, be a little I mean, vague with that. Told but... me. Yeah, yeah, no, she even told me that, like verbatim. She said, you know, the the watching it is the point, um, which is why a lot of yeah. those moments are not quick moments; they linger. Yeah, um, the shot lingers on them, the the moment lingers, um, and so you are forced to sort of sit in your discomfort or your enjoyment or whatever right. whatever feeling it is that you are feeling. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of the point. And so it's definitely it's definitely more an exercise in why am I feeling this way? Whether that's mm-hmm. being turned on by something or being very turned off by it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite, it's quite a ride. Oh, it sure is. Um, uh, Barry Keoghan, I think is just phenomenal in this film. Um, he, uh, of course, uh, got uh, attention last year for uh, the Banshees of Inisherin, Um, and he was nominated for uh, supporting uh, he is lead for this one, and he navigates this script and this character with like such a fine touch. Um, there are, I think, a lot of actors. It would have just, uh, it, it would have come off silly with other people, and he <laughs> plays it with such uh, sin- sincerity and seriousness and. Um, slyness that you don't even you don't even see some of it until the end you know what i mean like like mm-hmm. once the movie's over then when you get to think about the whole of his performance it's ah uh, it's just some brilliant work rosamund pike i also think is oh she's chef's kiss <laughs> she's delicious <laughs> is yeah. the right yeah the right word for that for sure um and it's funny you say that um i barry did recall talking to you by the way he he oh he did seen the film yeah he oh. said he, he was like oh yeah he's seen the film three times <laughs> like yep. oh oh he really <laughs> did oh yep okay yeah, he was a yeah. little shocked i think when i said that <laughs> i think he was because yeah, yeah he made a point to bring that up to me um yeah no and he just yeah it's exactly what you said i mean the film asks the most of him for sure yeah. um the, all the actors are incredible and they mm-hmm. all have these great juicy roles in their own ways but yeah the film definitely lives and dies with him and um <laughs> and he uh he's just so gung-ho with all of it i mean you mm-hmm. know emeralds talk, talked about that with us too about how these crazy things that she asked of him he he would just go with it and uh the result is <laughs> Yeah. The insane things that you see, you see on that screen. Yeah. Um, I mean, what a treat for an actor. Cause it's none of it's, uh, I don't think gratuitous or sensational. It's, um, it's really about the psyche of the character. And it's such a feast, such yeah. a feast for an actor. I mean, I can't imagine reading that script and, and not wanting to, to pick right? apart that character. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's such a, it's 
such a, a feast. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Emerald is uh, continuing this streak of creating uh, these, these really, um, in some ways nuanced, but in some ways very in-your-face uh, stories, like these themes that she's exploring, um, you know, first with Promising Young Woman and now with this, um, and very rightfully won, uh, you know, the Oscar for writing Promising Young Woman. Um, I think she's just... She she is a people use this word um, sometimes, I think, when they shouldn't. But I think it very much applies to Emerald. She is a visionary filmmaker like she's just not making a movie. She has a full vision of uh, everything, every element of these characters lives. Mm hmm. I thought you were going to say auteur. So oh, I, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm glad you, I'm glad <laughs> yeah. you went with visionary. Um, but, but I think both yeah. would, would work for her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think promising young woman had a lot of that too, where you're sort of forced to sit with some mm -hmm. shocking and some things that yeah. maybe you, maybe you approve of, maybe you don't approve of. And, um, and again, it's sort of like that showing, showing you is the point. I think yep. her two, her two directorial efforts so far have both, been in that vein and i'm really really curious to see what she makes us sit through next <laughs> oh, i can't wait cannot wait um and i i'm well i was gonna say apologies in advance but i make no apologies for it we're gonna continue to talk about this movie on this podcast uh since i you know i told you we do have that emerald interview coming up in a few weeks um but for now lauren here uh is what i want to ask you um because we've already kind of advocated i suppose for that film um but uh, now is your time to advocate for someone who you think should be getting more attention this award season. So who do you think ought to get a nod? Oh, gosh. You know, I just watched this film uh, a few weeks ago, and um, it's just – it's the type of little movie that uh, – it, it's just – it's so subtle in – in what it's doing, but it just bowls you over and that's past lives. And I know we said that uh, it's getting, yeah. you know, a, a recognition that, that you mentioned earlier, but I just, I want to advocate for that. Um, so hard because those movies, yeah. especially, I mean, I say this knowing very well that, um, everything everywhere all at once was also an early year release mm -hmm. and it ended up doing mm -hmm. fine, but from the same studio too. Both right. Traditionally yeah. those, those types of films have a hard, a hard Oscar journey ahead. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm really hoping that this one doesn't, I hope it doesn't get lost in the, in the fray of all of these big showy films that are also wonderful. But, um, I just think everything about that film is so, um, just so beautiful. I was yeah. just sobbing by the end. And it's, it, again, because it's not super flashy and it's, it's more just so intimate. I feel like those tend to get sort of overlooked, but I think they're equally, yeah. they, they equally require so much of, yeah. of, of the cast and the crew. And yeah, I just, I will be singing that movie and that cast praise mm. all, all season long. Um, if yeah. I can. Uh, Greta Lee, T.O.U., uh, John Magaro are all so good in that movie, especially when um, you get the three of them together. And yes, um, there's so much that's not being said, but you understand it all. Those are some really fantastic, um, well-executed scenes um, and not easy to do. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, a, a lot can just kind of get lost if you don't have the right actors for those <laughs> Uh, those kinds of, you know, emotional um, bits that, that, you know, they're exploring. But um, I absolutely love this movie. I'll go ahead and tease that uh, we have Greta Lee on next week's episode. So oh, 
Wonderful. Uh, uh-huh. I'm looking uh-huh. forward to that. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, she's so good. I love her so much. Um, and I'm so glad she's getting this kind of attention because she's, I mean, she's been great in so many things. Russian Doll and yeah. um, uh, this third season of The Morning Show. Holy cow, she had some incredible stuff. Um, but yeah, to like get the the real spotlight here, leading lady status, I'm I'm so happy for her. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. There's so much that goes on in those silences, I think. Oh like my gosh. Like what you were saying. It's just, it's so they, much. That entire cast, the the main three leads, really. Um, mm-hmm. It's just they don't have to say anything. They say it with their face, and there's just so much. There's so much hurt and so much love and so much yeah. depth there. Um, yeah, it's yeah. Just, all the it's all so the history good. you see it without them having to to you know it's not over. There's no over exposition or anything like that. It's uh it's it's great great stuff and. A first-time filmmaker, Celine Song. Yes, which um, I love. That I love. I love those yeah. those sort of underdog stories of these people who just come out with these amazing, amazing debuts. Because um, it, it just it makes me so excited for the future and and what they've got coming up next. Right, indeed. All right. Well, speaking of coming up next, uh, we are going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone, the awardist, will be right back. Welcome back to The Awardist. Until last week, Martin Scorsese was front and center for the promotional campaign for Killers of the Flower Moon. In fact, we just spoke with him and co-writer Eric Roth over the weekend. You can read portions of that interview at EW.com. But now, with the actor strike over, stars are, of course, allowed to speak about their movies. And our Devin Kogan just sat down with Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone to chat about this epic film. So here now is that interview. I wanted to specifically start by asking about the early scenes between Molly and Ernest, where they meet for the first time, where he's her chauffeur. What do you both remember most about about filming those scenes together? Mm. What I remember most was, um, you know, you're always taking an outside perspective of what what you want the audience to be in on. And this was like the solidification of what we felt was as twisted as the love story was a genuine connection that the both of these people had. We knew that if that connection wasn't there or you weren't going to be able to withstand an audience sitting there for the entire length of this movie and go along with us on this, on this journey. So we, we had, we had an initial meeting together and we were hyper-focused on how to tell this love story. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we had all the answers right away. That didn't mean that we understood the interdynamics of what lying and deceit meant and betrayal and what she's in on or what she's not in on. But it it became this sort of insular, uh, hyper-focused journey that we were both on on how to connect these two characters in a in a, in a real way, because after talking to much of the Osage community, the one thing that we're very insisted on, as bizarre it, as it may have seemed that this relationship worked, it, it did. And there was a love that they had for each other. Um, obviously, Ernest did incredibly deplorable things, but they kept insisting that this was the truth. And that was what was most fascinating to me, that and that's what we, when we had the first initial read throw, I was like, um, can you believe that this love story actually happened? 
and they they really did have that connection. It was shocking, to say the least. Yeah, and I I thank him a lot for in a lot of beats or transitioning between scenes. He didn't drop Ernest. He maybe dropped Ernest back a step and like, but he stayed in character, and then just brought all of all of his charm to that. So it helped me as Molly see somebody that she would be interested in, you know? So I really appreciated that. We, um, when we were working, like we worked together very easily. Um, when we're kind of volleying things back and forth, there's a natural cadence that develops. It was also him that wanted to learn how Ernest would help Molly put her blanket on and take it off. So we developed this like very actor's language for these two characters that ended up feeling very, very seamless. And um, yeah, it all, all goes to serve that grand betrayal. Yeah. And I think I read that you guys like did a little bit of improvisation in some of those scenes. There were like a couple lines that you guys like kind of played with and had fun with. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they may, <laughs> I think the one that you're referring to is what we were just talking about. <laughs> So there's um, Marty, you know, Marty remembers it slightly different than it happens. The scene uh, where she basically suggested that line to me. And then I said it. The handsome devil (laughs) line. line. (laughs) And that I mean, that that came out of just plainly trying to find a way of Mm -hmm. translating an old line that didn't translate into Osage. But wanting to the concept to remain the idea of like this handsome devil or this, you know, these devilish blue eyes thing was the initial line. But um the pacing of that scene, a lot of the a lot of the timing. And then I mean, one thing I learned from him that I've used with other actors is um a lot of times when it's not your coverage, he's he starts improvising. So the reactions you get from his improvisations can be very authentic. Because you know, it takes six or so where I'm laughing at this joke that I suggested. <laughs> um at some point, you know, the laughter needs to be refreshed. So then he'll throw something out of left field and then that that was very genuine. I love that. And Leo, you talked about this a little bit, but Lily, I'm curious, how did you kind of want to understand that relationship between Molly and Ernest? Because like I got to speak to David Grant and he said a lot of the same thing about how there was this love, but also this incredible betrayal. How do you kind of wrap your head around that? Thank you for asking. Um, I mean, initially, it's kind of set up in that same scene we were just talking about. Ernest was not the first white man that Molly courted. Um, I think audiences on maybe the second or third watch, especially if they haven't read the book, will catch these moments where Molly states herself as incompetent to her guardian, where for a time, Ernest is Molly's guardian and he's being chastised by Hale for mismanaging her money. And then eventually she goes back to her old guardian. The system was in place where Osages who were declared incompetent had to have mostly white males, but a white person handling their finances and granting them their access to their own money. So for a lot of Osage women, particularly, and a lot of Osage people, it was way more convenient to have your guardian be your spouse and in your household. So you didn't have to drive into town to talk to this this stuffy old man about giving you enough money so you can go get your medicine to manage your diabetes. You know, you could just say to your husband, we're we're having a feed, we need this, so I need the check for this many pounds of meat, basically. Um, so there was that element 
where there was kind of a mutual beneficial relationship there, which is why I think we were able to have as Ernest and Molly a little bit of fun in that first scene with it. Molly being able to call him out for being wanting money to admit to mm. her sisters, of course he wants money, but he's also, you know, it's kind of dumb, but he looks good and, you know, he <laughs> wants to be settled. <laughs> so, and, you know, we just, a modern audience watching a love story that they want to, that we want them invested in is going to be told a certain way. When we look at love stories from that era, they were different back then. So it was kind of a balancing act. Like, how much do we bring in that honors the true history and like set up really between these two characters? How much of classic cinema do we infuse to make this the piece of art that it is and to rightfully restore Native women in these leading roles in a space and film history that we've been very excluded from? Um, yeah, the the love story was um, proved a very good uh, fertile ground to have a lot of these conversations and do a lot of this work. Yeah, and I know you both got to meet and speak with uh, Margie Burkhart, who's obviously the granddaughter of Molly. Um, what did you take away from your conversations with her? Margie, I think, still was very puzzled how it was possible. Mm. She knew that it, there was love there. Ernest declared until his dying day that he loved Molly. To me, and kind of the biggest confirmation of that is Ernest learned Osage fluently. As in, in the screenplay, Molly is depicted differently in her handle of language than is in the book necessarily. Um, but in any case, he took the time to learn. And Osage, we can both say it's not an easy language to learn. No, ma'am. Um, you know, we we spoke it as well as we could for for the film. But for Ernest to do that, one showed a level of intelligence he had that I think a lot of people may have missed. And then two, his level of commitment to his wife. But then Margie, after all of it, you know, she said it was really, maybe it was her words, but she said it was really something to see how this love could have existed. She said it felt like maybe that's how it would have been and how it would have played out. And um, yeah, I think that was definitely one thing that we were most concerned about. And we were very pleased when we both saw the film that we had somehow done it. Yeah. And Leo, you've obviously worked with Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese, you know, before, what was it like working with them on this? I think I saw that interview with Scorsese where he was like, sometimes Leo likes to, likes to talk a bit more and, and uh, Robert De Niro likes to be a little bit more quiet. Was that, was that your experience? I wouldn't categorize it as quiet or talking more. I think that Look, they those those are my two sort of creative heroes in this industry. You know, I've looked up to them ever since I was 13 years old, and they almost have this amazing telepathic shorthand with each other. They almost communicate through their minds. It's a, it's amazing to watch um, the two of them not only in a social setting because they're whispering to each other, but sometimes you know a complete adjustment in in a scene to take his scene a different direction. It just takes a look from Marty to Bob and a nod from Bob and all of a sudden you're off to the races. And and for me, you know, the development of this story, having been somebody that, you know, we were both obsessed with telling the, the truth about about the Osage Reign of Terror. It was, a, it was a great 
gift for us to be able to uh, try to depict this story in, in the right way. And Marty and I's relationship was a lot of conversations about the development of the, of the screenplay, the narrative, the dynamics of the characters, and sort of shifting the entire story from being a whodunit from Tom White to this very twisted, bizarre love story between between Ernest and Molly. But as far as the De Niro aspect uh, of getting to work with the three of them together, it was it changed my life when I was 15 years old to be able to work with Robert De Niro. He eventually kind of referred me to Mr. Scorsese. I've gotten to do films with him, and here we are 30 years, here we were 30 years later in this sort of amazing concentric circle, all getting to work together. And uh, it, it's something, um, not only a film I'm incredibly proud of, but separate from that, to be able to sort of simultaneously work with my two father figures in this industry mm -hmm. who've taught me everything was, was a huge honor. Yeah, and I'm fascinated by the relationship between Ernest and Hale. It's sort of this twisted paternalistic kind of vibe to it. I'm thinking of like the spanking scene in particular is is so striking. Like, what, what do you remember most about filming that that sequence? <laughs> well, in a lot of ways, my first film, This Boy's Life, was about a an abused young man by his stepfather. And, and Hale, in a lot of ways, is an abusive uncle, mentally abusive uncle to Ernest, who, who sort of uh, is complicit in all of these hor horrific acts. But there is a sort of mental lock that he has on him that he can't break free of. And we, you know, we had so many different conversations about the dynamics of what that relationship would be. I mean, oftentimes for, for I think a month straight, we spent every weekend just talking about the final scene between those two characters and how to, how all this sort of culminates in a confrontation. And the more we talked about it, we, the more it became, um, that less is more. And it's not a big attack on one another. It's the betrayal of a father and a son. And mm -hmm. how would you how would you react to realizing that your father figure isn't who you thought they were? And um so in that respect, it was that was some, you know, some incredible, there were just some incredibly powerful creative moments that in a lot of ways we didn't need to overthink. And in a lot of ways, as I said, my first film was a, a very similar dynamic between De Niro and myself. And I got to, it just felt natural to fit back into those shoes of those two characters almost growing up 30 years later. Yeah. And I I know you guys actually got to film in Fairfax, in Pahuska, in some of these communities. Uh, what was it like to actually get to film in that location, um, you know, surround in, in the number of uh, members of the Osage Nation who worked in every capacity on this film is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I think it was essential as being in the actual Shawn Brothers office where Molly would have sat is that made that scene feel enormously creepy. <laughs> mm. um, the Masonic Lodge that you were just talking about, that was the Mason's Hall um, that was shot on location where it would have happened. Like you feel, you feel it in the land and in the place, but mostly you feel it in the people. And that's what was essential. It was, um, you know, it was such a gift to be able to be within the Osage community, 
You know, we had relationships that the film helped us build within the community. I had a number of Osage friends before the film that I got to connect with that, um, you know, eventually I, I still go back all the time. Some of my closest friendships were, were molded during this period of time. And for me, um, you know, I think it's so important when you're telling a story like this to maintain community accountability and in maintaining these friendships that I made, um, it's keeping that going on my part. And all of production, you know, like people still stay in touch. That benefit of being with community making this made it so much more important for all of us who were non-Osage being there. And it just eventually made for a stronger story and a stronger moment in history. So it was, yeah, it was incredible. And not only just like the places and the people, but because so many elements pushed production back to the year that it was, there were some, one night in particular, I remember the night that Anna Brown is murdered, that production day, what we were shooting was Anna leaving the house. So it would wow. have been on the night. Wow. You know, I was standing there watching Kara Jade Myers climb in next to Scott Shepard, Anna climbing in next to next to Byron, Brian, um, and watching them drive off together under a full flower moon, a super moon. It was doing the same thing it was doing 100 years prior in 1921, because we were filming in 2021. Um, you know, even before we got to production, I was offered this role on Molly Burkhart's birthday, unbeknownst to anybody who called me that day or decided to tell me that day. It felt like, you know... I don't like saying the word supernatural because it's like almost the most natural thing in the world that all of these things would have lined up the way that they did. But it shows you that it was, it was impactful. You know, the land remembers, the people remember. And because of a project like this, it's not going to be lost in time. Well, first, I got to say that is really kind of chilling to me. Um, all of those coincidences with the dates and getting getting the role on Molly Burkhardt's birthday and filming uh, the sister's death scene exactly 100 years to the date. Um, but Lauren here, uh, can I share my fear with you here? Um, is that. Uh, I hate even saying this, is that Lily Gladstone won't get nominated, which, of course, would be like a huge crime, given what the conversation around this movie has been like that, that someone, you know, the Osage actor is not nominated. Um, that's just a fear. Right. I, I don't think it's going to happen, but it's a fear. I mean, there's precedent for it. Uh, we've yeah. seen that kind of thing happen plenty of times before, unfortunately. Um, but I do, it's, it's, it's funny you say that. I'm curious um, if that's just like a, a gut feeling that you have, because I kind of feel like the opposite. Everything I've heard is that she's the standout yeah. of this film, not that there's, you know, a, a bad, right. a bad bit in there, but, but she's just sort of the one that really bowls you over. Um, 100%. And, and that's mm -hmm. sort of the buzz that I've heard. So I'd be, I'd be shocked at this point if she didn't, but I, but I guess to your point, you know, it's uh there is some historical yeah. unfortunate yeah. precedent yeah. for, for these, these things. Yeah. I guess just my fear really comes from not because she's not deserving. Uh, she's very much deserving, but more so just because of the crowded lead actress field 
this year um, because, well, we've talked about, uh, you know, um, Greta Lee here on this episode already. Then, of course, there's Margot Robbie, who I think uh, is also a bit on the cusp right now, who I don't think is a guarantee. You've got Natalie Portman and Emma Stone and Fantasia Barrino and uh, Sandra Ula for Anatomy of a Fall. It's just it's really just more out of like, I wish we could have 10 nominees. I know. Um, I know. I feel like every year we have this conversation yeah. where it's just like, how can we expand? You know, yeah. I know. I know. Um, and, and yeah, and, and it is hard, you know, the, the Academy tends to, well, I, I say that they, they, they love their ingenues. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in this particular case, you know, it's, it's hard. I think whenever you're talking about the Margot Robbie's of the world, M stones of the world, you know, these are names that people are familiar with and maybe with, Lily, they're not quite as familiar with her yet, although right. they absolutely should yeah. be. Um, and that that could be a, a potential ding, but I, you know, let's let's hope not. I know, I know. I want <laughs> I not. want her to be nominated. She so deserves it. Um, she's she's really fantastic in this film. Um, which, by the way, uh, if folks have not seen it, you can see Killers of the Flower Moon in theaters now. Um, I will give a, a gentle warning. I think you perhaps know the runtime. It's almost three and a half hours long. I advise no liquids one to two hours before you take your seat in the theater. Um, but, you know, obviously if you need to run to the restroom, you do that quickly um, or need to refill your popcorn, whatever it might be. Um, but um, I've seen it twice I, and I got to say, I was not bored either time. Um, so, but it is a commitment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. And we've had several of those this year. Um, well, give us an intermission. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, they try that a few places and, and they got their, I know, I got know. their hands smacked. But yeah. <laughs> Marty was not a fan. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Um, well, Lauren, um, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Let's of do it again. Of course. Of course. Happy to have you here. We will have you back again soon. Uh, and thanks so much to all of you for listening. If you like what you are hearing here on The Awardist, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, you can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials. We are at EW on X, formerly known as Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. And Lauren, tell everyone where they can find you. <laughs> well, I got rid of my Twitter slash X account, so I don't know. Um, you can oh. Find oh, my oh, work well, on EW.com. That's that's where you can exactly. find me. Exactly. <laughs> ding, ding. There we go. Um, and because, uh, by the way, Thanksgiving uh, is next Thursday, we are going to be bringing you our next episode a couple days early on Tuesday. So we will see you then and every day at EW.com. Bye. Bye. This episode of The Awardist is hosted and produced by Jared Hall and produced and edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.